if you look at the sequence of events, startup founders believe that they need to follow. One, create a startup, find co-founders, think of a product, and the next milestone is let's get funding. That's the immediate milestone they want to hit. And that takes over all their waking and sleeping hours, actually. And I would put a big part of the blame on Economic Times, your story, and all these people who glorify people who raise $50 million, $100 million, $200 million. You're putting in place the wrong role models and setting people off in the wrong direction. Welcome to another edition of Contra Minds. In this episode, we have a very accomplished guest who dons many hats, Srikant Shastri. Srikant Shastri is the chairman of i3G Advisory Network. He is also the chairman of the board IM Calcutta Innovation Park. He also successfully founded the big data and AI startup Crayon Data and he was formerly the chairman of Vivaki India and the founder and managing director of Solutions Integrated which is one of India's largest marketing services firms. He is also the author of the much acclaimed book The Ventilator Project. Shrikant is a great mentor, a fantastic marketing thinker, and a brilliant strategic brain. Over to my conversation with Shrikant. Shrikant, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, you had an amazing career so far. You are a, you know, IIT Kanpur, IMC alum. You have been a CEO. You have been a co-founder. You have started businesses. You have uh, been an advisor to companies. You have done something which is incredible with uh, you know professor amitabha bandopadhyay on the ventilator project i'm sure you have a lot of deep insights on business on entrepreneurship uh, so really looking forward to this conversation no my pleasure swami uh, the fact that we are getting to spend so much time after what 25 year 27 years now that itself yeah. is something I'm looking forward to. So, looking forward to a great evening with you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Shrikant. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, you know, coming to you as a young MBA grad and uh, you taught me a lot of things. So, I am from your school anyway. So, therefore, uh, uh, you know, it's great to connect back with you and uh, I have some great memories of working with you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to hear that. Uh, so, my first question, uh, Shrikant, is uh, I'm very curious to know, you know, what kind of a student were you in school? I was a very boring student. Uh, I was very boring, obedient to my parents, obedient to my teachers, the, as straight as you can get, completely naive as far as the real world is concerned. Uh, I grew up in a small town, 60 kilometers from Mumbai and completely ignorant of the ways of the world, particularly those in big cities, which is where I live now for the last so many years. And uh, yeah, uh, I was an obedient student, uh, but had studied hard, studied well. Uh, parents would get shocked. My classmates would get shocked if I didn't get first rank in a particular term. Uh, but played every sport under the sun, cricket, football, hockey, kabaddi, kho-kho, you can think of it. And those were the privileges of going to a Kendriya Vidyalaya or central school in those days where uh, the fee was 1 rupee per month till class 5, uh, 2 rupees per month till class 8 and 3 rupees per month from class 9 onwards. And which is why uh, 
everything, a lot of what I've done in my rest of my life has been out of that sense of gratitude because which other government will subsidize education that much? And therefore, uh, for me, it was a carefree, fun-filled school life, but completely straight and boring as far as today's kids are concerned. So tell me, Shrikant, uh, having cracked the IIT and the IIM, uh, where did your uh, inspiration or motivation come from in school? Uh, you know, uh, what kind of books would you read there? Uh, very important for uh, you know us to understand where did these uh, interests really come from for somebody like you? Interest for business and entrepreneurship? Uh, uh, interest in uh, you know engineering or in okay. business, which is okay. really uh, your uh, uh, work and things like that. Okay, so I'm going to separate the two. Interest in engineering actually never came. So I went to IIT by accident. <laughs> Come to that in a bit. But interest in business and entrepreneurship in many ways was ingrained I was, as I was growing up. My dad was a chartered accountant. And he uh, we lived in this town which was 60 kilometers from Mumbai. He would take a local train from Ambarnath and go to VT every day. Uh, four days a week. One day he would work at the local factory. And in Mumbai, uh, my dad was a voracious reader, as was my mom. So he, uh, my dad was a subscriber to Time, Newsweek, Far East Economic Review, and he would get a variety of books and magazines from a library. I still remember the name of the library, J.N. Pettit Library in Fort. And there was a lot of reading content. So Interest in marketing and business came through many of those cover stories in these magazines, including uh, Indian magazines, India Today, and so Sunday, and so on and so forth. So I still remember one of the early stories of marketing that piqued my interest was about the soft drink wars. It was about uh, what the soft drink wars in the 70s were, for example. So those are some of my early memories of marketing and business, for example. Uh, interest in doing business and being an entrepreneur came in a completely different way. Uh, the company that my dad worked for, uh, like most other companies in those days, was owned by a Gujarati business family where there were three brothers. Now, look, at it was a very company that was doing very, very well and a family-owned business, but a lot of professionals like my dad were working there. One of the things I was very, very curious and I would say negatively curious was, everyone would call the three brothers Sethji. Pratap Seth, Dhiru Seth, and Deepak Seth. And I would say, look, highly qualified people, why are they calling their boss Seth? I mean, you're too, it's too early at that stage of your life when you're in class 5, 6, 7, 8 to say, make a distinction about what's good or bad, but it just struck me as being odd. But I also saw when these three brothers, who were owners of the company, would come down to the small town to visit the factory. It was like not just a red carpet being laid out, it was like the way when today politicians visit a town, people are so obsequious. Uh, so I saw that happening with all the senior managers lining up. And somewhere in my mind, uh, it registered subconsciously that I don't want to ever be in a situation like this where I'm playing... Uh, paying homage or in the service of, of someone who's probably less qualified. And that is when I said, look, I'm going to do something on my own. Uh, obviously, startups, entrepreneurship, those terms did not even exist remotely in my radar. But that's where the first, I would say, seeds of saying, let me do something on my own arose, actually. 
engineering happened completely by accident uh, i was because my dad was working for a com- chemical company uh, all the people my dad was a chartered accountant but around me most of my dad's colleagues were engineers and most of them were chemical engineers or mechanical engineers and so therefore the general view was you have to become an engineer or a doctor and uh, you either did your class 12 and took vjti or udct in bombay or you appeared for the je i wasn't even thinking about it class 11 i came to mumbai uh, those days i was the first batch of 10 plus 2 in cbse so i came to mumbai and uh, was first year junior college in sis college sian actually and that was one year there were two years of exception where uh, je you were allowed to take after class 11 I wasn't even thinking about it uh, some people in the college said you know our college is organizing special sessions to uh, coach anyone who wants to enter so my granddad said why don't you fill a form so i filled a form attended those classes at sis college and got a rank as to remember 662 uh, which was a terrible rank in those years so my first preference was to be closer to home i could not go to iit bombay so i went to iit kanpur and i was meant to be a bad engineer and I'm, i remained a bad engineer uh because but uh because that's not my cup of tea uh and but soon uh, at iit i realized that look while i could do well if i worked hard but i wasn't enjoying it so i got involved in student association student council elections and so on and so forth and that's where i found my niche in terms of being saying okay organizing things doing things more action oriented so that became the path of doorway to the world so to say actually how was i am calcutta in the 80s because people know i am calcutta now but how was it in the 80s and uh, how did you uh, think you got trained in the uh, art of marketing at imc at that time so imc was completely different from iit kanpur iit kanpur was about training in life because you spent five of your formative years away from home made friends from across the country for the first time so iit was coaching in life and even if you're meant to be a bad engineer it trains you in analytical thinking uh, so that's the way i would put iit but uh, to me that was the most uh, important period of my life i am on the other hand i went in with my eyes completely open i went voluntarily iit i did not go voluntarily <laughs> went because of family pressure so i am i went in knowing fully well that i wanted to be an entrepreneur uh, but i also in my mind the goal was 5 years after working i would uh, become an entrepreneur yeah. so i went in saying that look i must learn marketing and finance and those are the two majors i picked up and i thoroughly enjoyed the courses uh, we had great finance faculty marketing the full time faculty was terrible but the visiting faculty was great and therefore the learning was great so i thoroughly enjoyed it most people spend those two years having fun i can say um, that and you ask any of my classmates and say look this guy never um, um, he was the one of the few guys who studied and i'm actually proud to say that because for me it was total value for money i spent time and i got every ounce out of it actually so to me it was great fun my foundations for both marketing and finance both topics actually even while running my businesses i would still go back to my finance one course uh debit expense credit sales i would go back to the basics 
even in the initial years and I, to me it used to come back like a fresh memory every time actually yeah. after uh, your imc you went to ponds and you worked there for 4 years and then you went to mccann i still remember that as an agency you were responsible for getting coke into india and uh, then you started result mccann you had a very different thinking in marketing at that time right so uh, how did that interest in looking at marketing not from just above the line but looking at it from a more integrated marketing perspective which is really fashionable today but uh, how did that happen in those years you know it happened partly by accident so my i went to mccann because i've said i've done 4 years of sales and ponds if i want to do something in business i must understand brands also which is when i said let me go to an advertising agency as opposed to looking for a brand management role after spending 3 years at mccann i got a good grounding it was pre mccann erickson days tarasena was running it 1992 i was about to leave i said look let me go and start something on my own i was all set because it was already 7 years after my working career of my working career my original goal was 5 years when i started to leave tarasena said don't go uh, we have this subsidiary company called result which has been languishing uh, if you stay back apart from being an account director at mccann you can also run that as ceo and i'll give you a 20% stake so that's how i got involved with result in the first place actually and when i got involved with results so i was wearing three hats actually the mccann hat for advertising client servicing result and as also spending a small part of my time with admar which is a marketing research agency of mccann actually so but i found result very interesting because uh, at the end of the day i while positioning brand building etc great the rubber hits the road when uh, things get sold or bought or activation happened then i found it very very interesting and i said look that's something to for me it was a, a learning experience it's also it was also an opportunity uh, while i owned only 20% stake it was an opportunity to run a business independently which is why i sunk my teeth into it actually i want to spend a bit of time on the result mechan experience where what you really did at that time if i remember right was uh, you went into book publishing for brands you really looked at doing a catalog which is really direct to consumer kind of a catalog for maggi so your whole host of category development in india yeah. uh, was done by you and uh, where did you pick up those ideas from because it was not available in an mba it was not available in any books so how did you pick up these ideas and where did you get the inspiration from for somebody uh, you know who's listening to this podcast how do you really pick up these uh you know interesting uh, ideas for them to kind of look at uh, you know building these things so that's for me has been the fun part of my life throughout whether it result mccann or even now when i hang out with young entrepreneurs the brainstorming and ideation to do things that have never been done before what can we do to think out of the box let's come up with as crazy an idea as possible with no boundaries without any constraints I think that's the inherent uh, for me that's the fun part of getting into a new area whether I got into result then or whether I started a company called solutions later or whether I do what I do today uh, for me getting involved in a new industry or area the fun part is saying it's completely unexplored and therefore no one's drawn artificial boundaries and therefore you can have 
complete and utter fun exploring it. But there is a flip side, and I'll come to that later. When you do that, you obviously make many mistakes. Uh, you because someone who follows you will say, "I should do this and should not do this." But for me, that's the fun part actually, and that's what keeps me going. To say, "Look, let's have fun. You'll make mistakes. Maybe you won't make as much money if if I unlike if I had done it straight and narrow." Uh, so that's the fun part. You just wear your ideation hat and just think out of the box and see what is required to um, make the needle move in this particular situation. And that's where it comes from. It's just utter creative ideation, brainstorming, and nothing else, Swami. Hey, fantastic, Shrikant. That's a great uh, answer. And uh, one of the key transitions that you made was uh, from being a professional to working in a agency in almost like a quasi entrepreneurship and then you went fully into solutions you know as an entrepreneur so tell me what was going through your mind uh, before you started the venture because you are a first generation entrepreneur so what was going through your mind and the pre startup anxiety is always yeah. Uh, yeah. something that i would like to hear from somebody <laughs> like you sure Well, if I did a startup today, I would be a lot more anxious, and the pre-startup anxiety would be a lot more today. Uh, when I look back at that particular time when I started it, when I look back and say, "Was I so naive, foolish, and stupid to take that kind of a risk?" Well, I was. <laughs> so while I did make a business plan, and I still carry a copy of the business plan because those were pre-soft copy, pre-internet days. I still. carry a copy of the spiral bound business plan i have preserved it for posterity all that part was done but i'll tell you the part that i completely missed doing and i regretted it forever and this is an advice i give to any entrepreneur today i tell entrepreneurs at all the gatherings i meet them before you decide to go it uh, go down that path if you're married or if you're in a relationship ensure that for the your family expenses for the next 2 years are set aside in a separate bank account that you have no access to only your wife spouse or partner has access to it so that your family part is completely secure i did not do that as a result of this here's what happened to start the business i put in all my provident fund withdrawals from my mccann and ponds days i had a maruti van which i sold and put that money in I had five credit cards which were fully maxed out. Not only that, I borrowed money from my wife's account and put it into it. I got equity from my two of my wife's brother and put into it. And I did not follow that basic security principle of keep two years of expenses in the account. Uh, in year one of the business, didn't matter. Didn't matter because we did outstandingly well. We exceeded the targets in our business plan. Got completely cocky and stupid. So year two and three, we stretched ourselves. uh we didn't grow as fast as we could ran into a cash flow challenge and all hell broke loose uh all the founders were 6 months behind on salary payments uh pressure on the home front my second son was getting born at that point of time i didn't have money to pay the hospital bills for example so the as i said when i look back now the pre startup anxiety was not there because i just planned it badly uh if i had to do it now i would do it very differently that's so when you think that's when anxiety happens when you don't think and then jump into it there is no anxiety you only get the anxiety when you're deep into the deep end of the pool actually very interesting and uh, the other thing that i saw you talk about 
was you did not take a vc funding and uh, you know those were the times when these kind of terminologies like a vc was not even there and that also seems to have shaped a lot of your thinking on how startups need to yeah. think especially from the vc funding side can you tell me some principles sure. uh, that you know people sure. can pick it up from sure so i think the key mistake that i caution young people today is people say the first if you look at the sequence of events startup founders believe that they need to follow one create a startup find co-founders think of a product and the next milestone is let's get funding that's the immediate milestone they want to hit and that takes over all their waking and sleeping hours actually and i would put a big part of the blame on economic times your story and all these people who glorify people who raise 50 million dollars 100 million dollars 200 million dollars you are putting in place the wrong role models and setting people off on the wrong direction instead what you need is to create a product or service that meets a genuine need or solves a genuine problem in the market and then with that in mind uh, once you kind of prove that you're actually delivering value to your customers customer revenue should be your primary source of funding and if you want need money you should do it at a point of time when you need money to scale up uh, it's like saying i've driven a car with 2 liters of petrol from point a to point b now i need to drive the next 200 kilometers can you give me petrol because when i reach that destination i would have really arrived at a big destination so people make the mistake of raising money early without having figured out the basics do i have a product or service that genuinely solves a problem and am i delivering value so the objectives are all wrong which is why i am completely in favor of people being very frugal in the initial stages i also tell people that look you must start by putting in your own savings that's when you know the value of money after that please go and raise some money from family and friends most people in india are very very shy of doing that how can i go and ask my family and friends for money my logic to them is completely inverse actually i tell them look they're not doing you a favor by investing in your business look at it this way tomorrow if you become a massive company they'll come and tell you why didn't you offer me shares in the company you're doing them a favor by asking them that look i have made progress in my business with my own money before i go and raise money from vcs would you like to come and buy some shares in my company you're not putting moral pressure on them you're not putting any pressure on them but you're laying the offer on the table not everyone will take it but some of them will and that's your family and friends round Uh, so that's a mental inhibition i try and get people to overcome with your own money and family and friends round you can pretty much build a small business which is showcaseable in the first 24 months at that stage if you have a viable business vcs will line up in front of you you won't be chasing vcs that's the fundamental principle that i push actually uh, one of the points uh, i wanted to talk about was your crossroads in 2004 okay yeah. uh, where after having done solutions because knowing you uh, when you started solutions i have always known you saying you want to retire with solutions right because you built a company you don't build it to exit and uh, the crossroads at 2004 is something that i want to talk to you about what sure. was going through your mind sure. and how did you apply that learning to your next venture sure so uh, actually the crossroad was for a completely different reason we started in 95 2005 would have been a 10 year mark 
so when I sat down to think in 2004, we, we had come out of a worst period. A worst period was 97 to 99. And uh, when we kind of hit all our cash flow challenges and all of that. Uh, my worst period during that day, uh, worst day during that period when I was down to the last 10 rupees in my wallet physically, zero in the bank account, and five credit cards maxed out. And I was driving the small Maruti 800, I would drive to work. And there was one day when it seemed like a Rajnikan movie, actually, Swami, in the sense, uh, the question was, will the petrol in my car finish first? Or will the 10 rupees in my wallet finish first? If the petrol in the car finishes first, I don't. I have only 10 rupees to fill uh, in my petrol. Or if, on the other hand, can I reach home safely and park my car? So it was like that kind of a race that day. So that was the lowest point. The other lowest point was when we had those cash flow challenges. I had suppliers knocking at my door. Remember, we were in marketing services. So we were dealing with printers and travel agents and all of those. So there was a well-known printer, I still remember his name, New Tech Printers. The owner was an old man called Mr. Shroff, very nice gentleman, but he had also got worn out by endless promises we had made that we'll pay you tomorrow, we'll pay you day after tomorrow. So one day he came to my office in Kalkaji, he caught hold of my collar and said, are you paying up now or not? And uh, I said, I have every intention of paying you, but I don't have the money to pay you, you'll have to give us time. He went and filed a court case against us. Uh, Eventually, we settled out of court and we became great friends, by the way. And there was another day where a travel agent showed up home on a Sunday saying, please pay me. Karke. So having gone through all that and having gone through a period where I realized that I hadn't provided for my family security, I was from a first generation entrepreneur, not that my parents had left any inheritance. I said, look, I can't take this risk for my family over and over again of not providing them security. And therefore, I must find a way to monetize my first business so that I don't have to worry about my kids and my family and their security. So it is driven entirely. So while you spoke about pre-startup anxiety not being there, this is in the midst of a startup an anxiety to say, look, I can't put my family at risk. I've already put them at risk sufficiently. And therefore, let me monetize it by bringing in a partner who I can sell part of my shares to. So in 2004, what I did was, I still remember, July to September period, uh, I had a very smart person, Vikram Alva, who's doing very well right now. He's based in Mumbai. He was my executive assistant. I got him to draw up a list of all the uh, global holding companies. Uh, who are the CEOs? Who are the people looking after international business? Uh, I went on a world darshan, actually, so to say. Uh, started in US, went to UK, went to Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, and came back. I, I met nine agencies or holding companies, every one of them you can think of. Uh, uh, and then out of those nine, about five, and my pitch was very simple that look, we are India's largest marketing services agency. India is a hot country. Do you, if you're looking at coming to India, we could be a great partner. Shall we talk? So five out of nine were interested, three got into serious conversations, which is how the publicist deal happened, actually. Uh, so that's the crossroad I was talking about. The crossroad was, uh, there was a serious thinking of saying, look, instead of doing that, should we just continue building the business on our own? But I just said, look, there's no guarantee you will not run into bad times again. I didn't want to put my family at risk. That was fundamentally the crossroad, actually. So from that venture, you moved into Crayon Data. You moved from a services company to a product company. 
So what is the difference in running a services company and running a product company? So I must tell you this, by the way, there was a parallel act happening along with Solutions Integrated. We had a second company which was running, which got sold to a Dutch group also. It was called Team yeah. for You. Uh, yeah, I, I will leave that aside. But services to product, this is how it happened actually. Uh, I bit, uh, Solutions got sold to publishers between 2005 and 10 uh, as a, a sold in tranches. Uh, 2000. 11 to early 2013, I stayed as India chairperson of their media and digital agencies. Uh, during that period, you get irritated with the slow pace at which multinationals move because you're spending all your time on global conference calls, which are completely meaningless. And therefore, once an entrepreneur, you're itching to be in the midst of action rather than talking to global people wanting to know one line item on an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, so... As it happened, my friend and classmate from IIM Calcutta, Suresh Shankar, uh, who's living in Singapore, he had sold his analytics company to IBM, Red Pill Analytics to IBM. And uh, he was also uh, around the same time frame, and he was also serving his time at IBM. And uh, from IBM, and we'd always said, let's try and do something together. And from within IBM, he had a bird's eye view for how uh, analytics were shaping up, how big data was becoming important, given how technology was allowing so, so much of data to be handled. So we started talking. Uh, and then uh, when we started talking, we, we kind of crafted the whole proposition to say, look, how can big data be applied in the marketing or consumer context and for helping to solve specific problems for enterprises? That's when obviously that play could have been a consulting play, which would, could have been services. But by then, uh, because I'd spent enough time with uh, the startup community, mentoring startups at places like Thai and Indian Angel Network, the whole concept of scale was well entrenched in my mind and also for Suresh saying a services business is harder to scale up and a product business is what can be scaled up, which is when we said, let's build a product out of it. But I must tell you, we made a hash of it in the initial few years because neither of us had ever built a product before. And we did not bring in a senior product person as part of the founding team. So here were two services guys trying to build a product business. And uh, every time we would go to a client, the client would say, this is the problem, can you solve it? We would wear a services and consulting hat and said, yes, we can do it. And we would come back to the company and tell the product team, can you do this? So by the time, every day the product would keep changing because every time we met a new client and the product mindset was never there actually. No, so true. So how did you juxtapose the best practices of services thinking in a product company? Because there are some great practices in a services yeah. uh, business that you yeah. can bring it into product. Sure. So sure. how did you juxtapose sure. those learnings sure. into a product company? Sure. So leaving aside the uh, initial pitfalls I told you about the product getting completely messed up, leave that aside. But effectively, because we wore a services mindset, uh, when you're in a services company, Swami, you know as well as I do, you listen a lot more to clients. You have conversations with them about the problems they face and the brief that they have in mind. So when you do that, when you do have those conversations, you effectively start co-creating a solution with them. So we brought the co-creating mindset to our product also. So when we co-created, the, so we picked two or three verticals initially, the banking vertical, the hospitality vertical, the airline vertical. 
So when we spent time with those clients, we came back with so many insights uh, that it helped to, uh, and more important, in each case, we had an anchor client, a big bank, a big airline, a big hotel. Uh, so when you co-created with them, you're telling them, we'll create it together. You'll be my biggest client because of which I'll give you a lot of benefits, not just in terms of price, but the kind of features you get to test out. And those learnings in terms of what works, you come back and then transfer onto your product. So co-creation of products, working with clients, is probably the single biggest learning that you bring from a services environment, actually. After that, uh, Srikant, you took an advisory role. You started the IG3 uh, advisory network. Uh, you explored journey from uh, you know, being a student to a professional to a founder operator to an advisor. How do you see the traits in each of this very different, say from being a professional to a founder operator or a founder co-promoter to being an advisor. How do these traits change and what adaptability that is needed for each of these roles? Sure. So when, when you say professional, I'm assuming a professional working in a large corporation, for example. Yeah, right? yeah, true. Uh, I mean, at the risk of sound making a generalization, a professional in a corporate environment is operating within boundaries that someone else has laid out, uh, that someone else could be sitting in US, Europe or India, uh, but you're still operating without within boundaries. While there is scope for creativity and innovation, but some boundaries are laid out and you can't expand them. And therefore, it's your ability to deliver outcomes or be accountable for results within those boundaries that makes you a great professional and your ability to work with peers, managing seniors, managing subordinates. That's what distinguishes a great professional. And when you're working as a professional, you also need to deal with organization politics, there's a rat race and all of that. So that's the professional world. When you go in as a founder, it's a completely different world. Uh, the trait is you have to be completely self-sufficient uh, from getting your own cup of tea to booking your own flight ticket to uh, finding the office space uh, to hiring an employee to getting your first customer to ensuring there's money at the end of the month to pay a bank. There are no boundaries. There are no boundaries to the work that you do, but there are no boundaries to your ambition either. And you're only accountable to primarily to yourself as if... Later on, obviously, if you are VCs and other investors, you're accountable to them, but you're primarily accountable to yourself and your team members. You're accountable to your team members because you sold them a vision, which is why they joined you. Uh, you're accountable to your team members because you have to have money to pay them salaries at the end, 31st of the month. So accountability is to you and your team members and to the vision that you laid out. So that's the difference for a founder. Uh, when you then go in uh, as an advisor, uh, it's 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 very very different and uh, i today when i play an advisory role to very different kind of companies uh, for me the key trait is to be able to connect many 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 dots uh, what my clients value in my advisory role is the 20 different experiences i might bring to the table to help them think through a particular challenge and that is one trait actually what did i do when i walked into my first banking customer in New York for Crayon Data? What did I do to generate a sales pipeline for Crayon Data? What did I do to raise money for uh, uh, XYZ company? 
what did i do when i hired that great employee vis-a-vis a bad employee now when you bring all those experiences to play to solve a particular problem for a client that's what the client values you and the other thing the other trait that i pers- it's not true for everyone else someone like mckinsey comes in people value them for just their advice in my case it's actually advice with sleeves rolled on uh, because i stay on and work quote unquote in a build operate transfer mode uh, last year for an edtech company which wanted to get into b2c while they were only in b2b i spent 9 months helping them to set up the team and actually build the b2c business from scratch at the end of 9 months handed over when they were doing 25 lakhs a month revenue handed it over to the new hire and moved out so that to me is that's the kind of trait i bring the ability to work with people and most of the people i work with are in their 20s or at most early 30s and that's the other trait the ability to in an organization when you're a professional you're managing your superior you're managing your subordinates but when you're an advisor the kind of advisory i do it's the ability to work with people who are 20 years younger 10 years younger or your age group or work with external stakeholder and the catch word is work with you're not managing them and ability to carry all of them along with what you're doing actually so it's a completely different experience but very very enjoyable actually now switching gears a bit you know i see that you are now involved with the i am calcutta innovation park you are with tai you are with birark so one of the questions that i have is if you really look at the kind of companies that are being built in india how do you really bridge world class education with world class research and i believe entrepreneurship can bridge that but clearly the challenge is how do you bridge that because if you really want to create a tencent in india you really need the world class education institutions from our country uh, working very very closely with companies and you know you need to bring that bridge together so how do you enable that and what do you think yeah. are the challenges that we face so i'm going to give before answering that question in general terms or abstract terms i'm going to give you two examples and then converge it to articulate some general principles the two most fascinating things i've seen in terms of my experiences or engagement with entrepreneurs and you'll find them as polar opposites actually one is uh, i work a lot with companies startups in the biotech life sciences medical space actually uh, i do that there are 60 bio incubators across the country and i'm on the board of two of them and at birac that's where i get to interact the founders are invariably phd's in biosciences bioengineering biotechnology biomedical phd's uh, they've done their phd in the best universities in us and have come back with a vision of creating life changing products and the kind of products uh, that these phd's are creating how can i use ai to detect early onset of breast cancer without pers- passing the woman through a mammography without it being invasive how can i do it with a simple ai device that is held remotely for example great product another product how can i restore the power of speech to someone who's lost it because of throat cancer for example can i use uh, innovative biotechnology to increase the productivity of agricultural crops for example now these are all bright phd's or masters who come back and applying and in many cases they're applying the core thesis of their phd to transfer the learnings to build great products here 
and it's hard work because unlike other startups which can raise a lot of money get to market quickly products in this space have a longer gestation period 3 years because just transferring from science to a lab scale prototype from a lab scale prototype to a slightly bigger prototype clinical trials and then taking it to market 3 years you need patience and persistence and resilience actually fortunately the government has played a very good role through birac to support 800 odd startups over the last 6 7 years with funding for those 3 years so that is a great inspirational example of the kind of products that are now in the market at an early stage to impact our healthcare our environment and our agriculture actually to me that's the intersection of academia research and entrepreneurship on the other so that is a great example of products that can solve problems of india on the other hand a completely different model of startup which is a fascinating startup i've seen out of im calcutta innovation park it's a entrepreneur called kalyan who's in a rural village of bengal he set out to solve the problem of poor goat farmers okay now bengal is the biggest goat meat consuming state in the country and therefore there are many goat farmers and they all suffering from the problem that the goats are not healthy and therefore don't fetch a good enough price in the market or don't give enough milk now this guy first worked with the government lab to create an artificial insemination technique so that you can create more goats and make them healthy but that's a small part of the innovation but the big part of the innovation is he said look i am sitting in one village where i am have, he's got a goat farm where he's creating this bank of artificial semen how do i take it to the last goat farmer in the smallest village of west bengal how do i build a distribution channel you know what he did he said one thing we don't have a shortage of in in india is of unemployed men and women who are youth so he has created a distribution channel imagine the amway model being replicated in rural india with thousands of unemployed men and women who come to him buy the doses of artificial semen take it back in cryogenic cans to their village they are trained on how to inject it into the goat look after the goat and work with the goat farmer they buy each dose at 30 rupees sell it at 100 rupees when they inject it the 70 rupee margin enables a few thousand unemployed people to make 10000 rupees a month can you imagine the downstream effect of employment that to me is a classical entrepreneurship model that india needs which is did successful entrepreneurship should lead to livelihood creation and not just wealth creation for the vc investors that to me is the key metric so one of the metrics i'm pushing actually the incubators i work with it's called jobs created per crore of capital deployed jcppd so to give you an example 25 lakhs is the money that i am calcutta innovation park has given this guy and he's provided livelihood to 2500 people so if you now say for a crore of capital deployed what is the jpccd is 10000 come back to the nifty listed companies on national stock exchange all the manufacturing companies put together have a jpccd of 0.8 for crore of capital deployed they create 0.8 jobs uh which includes lnt reliance tech all of them services companies because they are job more people oriented still do between 4 to 6 per crore 4 to 6 jobs per crore of capital deployed uh some startups on the other hand startups like this when they can do 10000 this may be an outlier but startups can 
if you create employment oriented startups and put money there you can actually make a difference and solve the employment pro unemployment problem of india so those are the two models that i'm totally fascinated by and where i spend most of my time actually i really love the metric shrikant because we need uh, we need to metricize on our own terms because we right. tend to ape the west in terms of right. metrics so i think right. it's very important to look at the kind of metrics that you are talking about i also know you do a lot of work in the education side because that's another area where it's almost like how you started talking to me saying i was never meant to be an engineer but i went to iit kanpur and uh, you know but i found my calling in imc one of the things that uh, i am fascinated about is education at a very young level where you really need to inspire children uh, you know i know you are involved with a lot of education uh, initiators how do you think that change has to happen in india the way i am seeing is there is a difference between education and learning and uh, you know how do you get that change at a granular level yeah so i'll try and give you a few examples uh, i think a lot of the criticism about education in india is that it's divorced from uh, actual reality it's divorced from uh, what you eventually do in life it's theoretical it's rote learning etc so one of the areas where i've been deeply involved is uh, and the learnings have come from many different directions it's about connecting dots uh, one of the things i do i am a visiting faculty at ashoka university for example where i oversee what is called as the experiential learning module uh, for 190 students of their postgraduate fellowship it's fascinating because these 190 students are divided into 38 groups of five each so they're working on 38 projects through the year as part of their curriculum credit course through the year uh, some many of these projects are sourced from clients so it's a year long project that clients have given them and a lot of the clients are in not for profit sectors or socially impactful sectors but there are commercial sectors also but during the course of the year they are actually work and it's a serious project unlike those fatru internships that all of us did when we went to engineering college for example where you wild away your time in the summer the organization didn't know what to do here it is very very well curated uh, for example to pick the 38 projects that were to be assigned we had 110 requests coming in from clients across the country we we send an outreach saying if you'd like to give a project to our students fill up this proposal form 110 proposals came in we located to see is this a serious client is this a serious project is this a project that will lead to certain kind of learning for the student learning in terms of problem solving innovative thinking uh, teamwork etc and those 38 projects then get executed through the year and my role is to ensure that uh the learning objectives are being met so while even when they are working on a client project they come back to me periodically and i grill them to say look uh what are you uh, if this is the client objective and scope uh it's just like what you would do in an agency or an organization you're asking your team whether they are on the right track with strategy with execution and i'm questioning them all the time and as a faculty member i get to grade them on that and therefore i'm pushing them on that direction out of these 38 projects this year introduced a new innovation we said look some of you who want to be experience entrepreneurship instead of a client centric project we invite you to design your own project think of a problem you want to solve uh, form a group of five and this is your opportunity to be entrepreneurial to solve that problem and they work directly with me i am their client in this case and i'll give fascinating examples one of them said 
I want to solve the problem of the carbon trail that mobile phones leave behind. Uh, one of the biggest sources of carbon footprint is the mobile phones and what goes inside it. So these guys are creating a Chrome plugin. So every time someone goes to an e-commerce website to shop around for mobile phone, the Chrome plugin says, I'll tell you which brand leaves what kind of carbon footprint, what are the relative ratings, and if you want to make an informed choice, all things remaining equal, to buy the brand that leaves the least carbon footprint, I will give you the advice. This is one project, for example. Another project is, again, environment-focused, saying, can I create a marketplace for all recycled, upcycled products uh, across the country so, uh, for people who are conscious of the environment? Someone else is working on education. Someone else is working on something else. So experiential learning, to me, is a big, big way of ensuring that you make a connection between what you're learning at the university and what the real world needs and what is required to solve India's problems. So we've taken this, uh, so this learning and the learning from my ventilator project where we compressed 18 months what uh, MNC takes to build a ventilator into 90 days. Last year, I took both these experiences from Ashoka University and the ventilator project to IIM Calcutta. So when the new MBA batch was being oriented last year, I mooted to the director and said, why don't we introduce a new experience for them. Let's create an experiential learning module. So we said, we'll pick the top five startups at IM Calcutta Innovation Park, and let's constitute dedicated task forces to support each of those five startups. Uh, so in the next six months, the startup must become investor ready. And to help them, we said there will be two students, one faculty member, two alumni, and one staff of the IIM Calcutta Innovation Park who will interact every week. So it became experiential learning for the MBA students, actually. So to me, these are the different forms of learning that are bringing the real-life perspective into learning through an experiential module, actually. So great fun. Uh, and because I'm doing this at four or five places, the ability to connect dots, transfer learnings is truly enjoyable, actually. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, which brings me back uh, to the ventilator project i know you were a co-lead uh, with iit kanpur and uh, you know uh, the kind of work that you did there you talked about compressing the product life cycle uh, just now uh, i had a question on that uh, what is the difference between building a product in a crisis versus building a product in no crisis and well, uh, you know uh, that is a very very big yeah. mindset difference yeah. that i see which you're covering it in the book, but it's a big, big mindset change because you would have seen the difference when you're building it in crayon data versus actually the ventilator project, right? Yeah. So I think two or three differences. When you build a product in a crisis and you bring people together, there is a higher purpose that rallies people. Uh, it's no longer just about making a product a commercial success. It's about solving a challenge or a crisis that the country is facing. So the higher purpose galvanizes people like nothing else. That's one difference. Uh, the second difference is that in a compressed time frame, you're able to get uh, people to do a lot more uh, because you bring in a lot more people. So when I said that we were able to build a world-class product in 90 days as opposed to MNC staying 18 months, it's because we brought in 20 different kind of experts 
they're working parallelly and not sequentially. Why does it take an MNC 18 months? Because you hold one meeting today where you're discussing the product design and then you say, okay, let's reconvene next week where second iteration is done and it takes you three months to create the first design version. Then you bring in the manufacturing team to weigh in on that. And it just happens sequentially with no sense of urgency. When you do things parallelly with 20 people with diverse expertise, thinking together, working together and have a sense of urgency and you bring in people with 30, 40 years of experience, uh, you just are able to collapse the time frame. The third dimension, which the pandemic, normal crisis would not have caused it, but the pandemic did. Uh, you're no longer dependent on people being physically in the same room to work on a project. Uh, we had our best product guide was sitting out on New York. He works R&D head of a global uh, medtech company. Uh, he would he gave us the initial guidance. Uh, there was a doctor in California who initially said okay to the prototype. In a normal world or in a peacetime, as the, you would say, you would have waited for that guy to take a flight and come in. And by the time this meeting could be scheduled, it would have been three months. Here, it takes you... Uh, the next day you can have them on the call. And so the mindset has changed with respect to how people collaborate. And that was the big difference, actually. But that change is now here to stay. And that's very, very important for us, actually. I know you're working on the oxygen concentrator project. I saw a lot of work that you're doing there. And uh, uh, how are you bringing these diverse teams and where do you yeah. see it uh, really taking shape? And yeah. uh, how fast do you see that, you yeah. know, fructify in your mind? Yeah. So, uh, there are similarities, but yet differences between what we did with the ventilator project and now on the oxygen project. In the ventilator project, while we did 90 days, and uh, 90 days is a short time frame compared to 18 months, but here for oxygen, we don't have the luxury of even 90 days because oxygen is required now. Uh, uh, therefore, we said, it can't be about nurturing one startup, getting them to design the product, getting them to manufacture the product and bring it to market. Here we said we'll have to jump several steps quickly. So we said uh, we, we need to get many manufacturers across the country simultaneously make oxygen plants and oxygen concentrators. So it's available in large quantities across the country. And therefore, this game is more about rapid manufacturing. And, but supporting those manufacturers, but those manufacturers may have adjacent skills, but they may not be in the oxygen manufacturer business. So how do you equip them with the right product design? So the effort was to initially bring the right experts to create design. So once again, we had people from across the world contributing ideas on the product design, academicians, practitioners, researchers, everyone. And that design is being made available to these manufacturers to say, go run with it. We will have manufacturing experts who will guide you on how to apply this design. Equally important, uh, in the oxygen concentrator and the plant, there are two critical components which are in short supply across the world. There is something called a zeolite, which is a molecular sieve that separates the nitrogen from the air and leaves you only with pure oxygen. And then there are the compressors. Both of them are in short supply and the manufacturers on their own will never be able to lay their hands on it. So we've scoured the globe and every part of India to source it centrally. So we said, we will help you with design. We will help you with manufacturing guidance. We will help you in sourcing these critical components. 
and we will also arrange CSR funding because when you make a plant or a concentrator, someone's willing to buy those and donate it to the needy hospitals. So this one was critically focused on manufacturing scale, whereas last year it was about making one great product with one great startup and bringing it to the market actually. So similarities in terms of the way we've got task force working, but difference in terms of the emphasis. Here's the emphasis on manufacture of large quantities. Today, Shrikant, uh, we have a model in India where the best Indian talent builds products from outside India. Uh, what does it take for the same talent to build world-class products for the world market from India? Yeah. So I think that change is already happening. Uh, there are two or three things, actually. One is because the world is now virtual. Uh, so one is you can keep hoping that Indian talent will come back to India and start building products from here that will take happen over a period of time. It's already better now compared to what it was two decades ago, three decades ago. But what's already begun to happen is people sitting in the US are, or anywhere else are getting involved with products built in India. Ventilator project, I already said we had people from US helping, a doctor, a product exp expert. In the oxygen project, we have a very senior expert from Canada who's literally been working 24 by 7 to guide us. So Indians living abroad are already contributing to get products being built here. Uh, right now, the product we're building is for solving India's problem and crisis. But in both cases, the ventilator project and this one, the mindset we've kept is design and manufacture a great product which is good enough for the international market also. Don't cut corners on reliability, safety, and equally important, Indian products, even when they're reliable, tend often to luck, look clunky and ugly. Uh, I mean, it, look, imagine the world before Steve Jobs and world after Steve Jobs. That's the mindset you need. And that needs to be ingrained right at the beginning. You can't suddenly come and put a layer of packaging six years later saying, I want to go to international market. Now let me make it beautiful. And the Indian consumer expects it now. Uh, because all of us as consumers have got just used to better products and therefore we might as well design products that way when you want to eventually sell it to the world. And for, fortunately, I think a lot of young people realize it now that you need products that uh, are designed, built for the global market, even when initially you're selling it for the Indian market. But Indians are equipped to sell to the world. It's like saying if you can drive a car in India, you can drive it anywhere in the world. The traffic and roads can't get any worse. So if you can sell a product in India, you can sell it anywhere in the world. Fortunately, it's the tools to sell it globally are now become easier. You don't necessarily have to send salespeople all over the world. SaaS products are getting sold remotely. Even enterprise products, the customers overseas in the post-COVID world don't expect you to be sitting in front of them. They're willing to see a demo over a Zoom call. So the circumstances are favorable for us to sell products globally if we can build great products, actually. One of the things uh, you talk about is when you talk about doctors, I saw you talk in an interview saying they have something ca called a continuing medical education, yeah. right? Some great work happening, uh, you know, for them. But when you really look at a career like ours, which is an engineer or, uh, uh, you know, an MBA or a chartered accountant, we tend to think that once we graduate, yeah. the learning almost yeah. stops. Uh, yeah. For somebody to kind of uh, be relevant, for somebody yeah. like youngsters and you know yeah. middle, you know middle level professionals to be relevant, 
the importance of continuing magic yeah. uh, continuing education is very yeah. very critical yeah. what would you what would your advice yeah. be yeah. for them to be relevant and how do i be yeah. a continuous learner yeah so i think uh, the mistake that most people make is uh, if you look at continuing medical education uh, either the hospital or the medical college you work in or the medical association or the medical sellers they are organizing those continuing medical education so it's being literally being offered to you on a platter likewise engineers who are working in corporates or companies usually sit back and say if i need to be trained it's a company's responsibility very rarely do people take the responsibility on their own but uh, if you look at entrepreneurs young entrepreneurs particularly in the technology world who are charting uh, going into uncharted territories no one can teach them they have to learn on their own i'll give you a simple example the ventilator project the two founders of nokar robotics had never seen a icu ventilator in action before they designed the ventilator so on a crash basis they read medical textbooks they read everything they could do on the internet to understand the underlying science the underlying medicine to be able to build that and that's where the learning happened for them and therefore to me Uh, all learning has to come out of an innate curiosity if people sit back and say look i'm going to be working in this company for the next 5 years is their responsibility i think that person's going to be obsolete very soon uh, i think people while there are some catch phrases saying tomorrow's world is going to be ai if you don't know ai you're going to be obsolete some people will go out and try to learn it but i think it's about just being observant around you of all the trends uh, by the way on ai i must tell you this that while i've done many things of self learning i actually when i first started as a i was the first sales person number 1 at creon data i said look i can't approach it just from a business sense i need to learn ai so i actually enrolled for a ai course on coursera but here's what happened after that it said there are two prerequisites you must know python programming and you must also refresh your high school calculus now i had to go back to the basics on both so for next i signed up for a python programming course on coursera and i started looking for my old calculus books but i must tell you that i gave up very soon because trying to do all those three things while doing a day job was impossible so that was one of the places where i failed with respect to that but i just think it has to come out of an innate curiosity uh, when you are exploring uncharted territories there's no option you have to go and learn actually uh so the onus is entirely on the individual no one knows it to the individual to uh, provide that kind of learning or training opportunity you have got to do it yourself is what i would say great uh so my final question shrikant is if you had to write a letter to your 10 year old self today what would be the three pieces of advice you would give him okay this is a difficult question <laughs> Ten year old myself, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Because now that you have had a thirty, forty, fifty year experience, yeah. I uh, I assume that you know you've gone through schooling, you've gone yeah, through yeah. work, you've gone through yeah. entrepreneurship, yeah. and I'm sure yeah. today when you look back, what would you write yourself yeah. to say? Okay, what's the advice you would give yourself? Yeah, assuming that uh, that ten year old is living in today's day and age, and not when I was growing up. So one yeah. thing, the first advice would be, please. learn coding even as you are 10 years old fiddle around with build things because tomorrow's world you can't live without coding 
and if you're a great coder, then there are many avenues that will open up to you. That would be advice number one. Advice number two would be, don't be the good obedient boy at school that you were. Break as many rules as you can because it's when you break rules that you get the mindset of going and creating things that the world has never seen before. That would be the second one. Uh, the third one would be, that look, don't wait for 10 years after you finish. I would still go and do my engineering course, but uh, this time around, I would probably uh, for, uh, get into more like uh, computers rather than chemical engineering or mechanical engineering. But I would not wait for 10 years after my education to become an entrepreneur. I would, uh, my advice to you would be, even while you're studying your engineering, please begin your first startup while you're still on campus. Uh, make mistakes, and uh, there, are, there are very few downsides to doing that, and don't wait for 10 years. That would be my third advice, actually. Fantastic, Shrikan. Brilliant advice. I think the way you came, came up with the answers was really, really good, and thanks for your time, and... Uh, it was a great learning experience for me and uh, it was fantastic talking to you. Thank you, Swami. All I hope is I was not like the boring kid I was when I was in school and I hope it was as interesting as the later part of my life has been.